0: Okay, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time together, to uh, just to be together, and not just to be together, but to be together uh, around your word. Lord, I pray, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you're a God who communicates with us and who has given us your very self. You are the word. You speak to us, Jesus, exactly about what God is like, our Father, Uh, when we see you and all that you've done for us, we see the heart of the Father. Uh, there's no contradiction in you. And so we bless you. We pray that your word, the opening of your word, would give light, not bring darkness, but give light um, as it is unfolded tonight. Give me wisdom, give us wisdom and understanding, and give us, as we understand you more, and your gospel more, and your plan for the ages in Christ more, give us a greater love for you and for the great lengths that you went to to save us and to open up a, uh, a way into salvation through the pitiless walls of the world through through God's just wrath which stood against us and uh, you came and you took it in our place so we bless you and um, just pray a blessing over this time and every person here and pray it for your glory Thank you for being here with us, Lord, by your Spirit. It's as if you're sitting at the table. You're in each of us. So um, come and fill us now. And give us love and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Let's see here. Okay, so we, friends, are in Romans 2. We made it to chapter 2. I was listening. I, I was telling Sarah that I drove home for lunch today, which is a, a rare occurrence, but drove home and then drove back, and partly because it's so pretty outside and I just wanted to be outside, even if it was just with the windows down, and um, and then also partly just so I could listen to a couple Martin Lloyd-Jones um, sermons on Romans 2, which I hadn't done in a while at least, and so I listened to the first couple, and it... It, in the in the first one, on the first few verses of Romans 1, of Romans 2, rather, he says, well, look, we should be speeding things up here. Uh, we spent 29 weeks in chapter 1. <laughs> and I was like, man, that's, that's the whole enchilada for us. So, uh, and it's funny knowing that it took them seven years. So, it's like, they did speed things up proportionately per chapter, but um, yeah. So, I think it took us four, and um, we won't being that long in many of the other chapters, but I don't feel as bad now since he took 29. So here we are in chapter two and plan on taking two weeks to be in chapter two. We're doing Romans two, one through 16. I almost said this morning, this evening, and um, I'm calling this God is an impartial judge. God is an impartial judge. Um, I didn't crack open Keller. He has a little commentary until after I'd done all this and I was just kind of reading what he had to say and um, he actually, his title is worth mentioning up front. His title for this is um, The Religious Need the Gospel, which is great, and it's a tie-in. kind of gives us an understanding. So God is an impartial judge, kind of the more obvious, but um, The Religious Need the Gospel really helps tie in to what we've looked at so far in Romans 1, and I'll, I'll do that um, a little bit here in a second. Why don't I go ahead and read? Again, I hate, I hate to be the one reading because I'm the one talking most of the time, but just for the sake of the recording, I'll do that. If you want to follow along, please do. And if you have an ESV or whatever translation, I'll be in the ESV. Therefore, this is Romans 2, starting in verse 1. I'll read through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Just letting that sit on us for a little bit, thinking about what that will be like for eternity is truly terrifying. Paul continues: There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. When by what when he, when he says Greek, what does he mean? Everybody. Yeah, yeah, everybody is non-Jew. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, verse twelve: For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Amen, amen. Okay, so the religious need the gospel, or something to that effect, is is the title that Keller Keller gives his section. I'm titling it God, titling it as for reasons you can see now, as we read through it. God is an impartial judge. Um, The religious need the gospel. So if if he says. That the religious need the gospel is a title for this section. How might he tie with that title? How might Keller tie the section we just read into what's just come before? I mean, after all, what's the first word in our English of uh, of of this text in in uh, Romans two one? Therefore, right? And of course, we've 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 just come. I mean, we've we've taken a week off, but Paul hasn't. You know, he's he's writing one continuous thing. So what? So something is obviously, he's, he's continuing his argument. What, what's come before? What's the heavy section that we dealt with last week? What is, what is Paul talking about in, in Romans in 1.18 Romans and following? The wrath, of God. the wrath of God. And if Keller is saying here, hey, the religious need the gospel, what do you think he might title the section from chapter 1?
1: Pagan.
0: Yeah, the irreligious, or the irreligious, or pagans who have different religions other than the true religion, uh, as revealed by God to His people, the Jews. Um, so whether you're an atheist or whether you're a polytheist or you know a pagan who worships a different god, uh, you're you're um, an, a devotee of a false religion. You worship a false god. Uh, you need the gospel. You definitely need the gospel. Atheists need the gospel, but so do the religious. So do the Jews, in fact, the ones who had the true religion, the only ones in the world who had the true religion. Uh, And uh, Paul is telling them that they need the gospel. And there's a, there's a controversy about whether um, it's clear that if you start in verse, starting in verse 17, Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew, he's clearly at that point forward talking to the Jews in particular. In chapter one, he's mainly focused on everyone but the Jews and how God's wrath is going to be revealed against their righteousness and they don't have any hope in their own deeds. Um, they all stand guilty before him. But in two 2.1, through one sixteen. this passage we just read, there's a debate. Is he talking to the Jews yet? Or is he still focused on the pagans, on, on the non-Jews, the Gentiles? And uh, I think a good re- there's good reason to think that, yes, he's including everyone, but I think he's mainly got his guns trained on the Jews. Um. So, so another thing that Keller says that I'll just say up front that can help us is that if you think about basically what Paul's doing is he's he's taking the the parable of the prodigal son. Think about it in this way, okay? In Luke 15, with who are the who are the two? What are the two sons in in Luke 15? How do they? So, so the first son is what? Prodigal. He's prodigal, and what does he do? Goes to far
1: country. Wastes
0: his inheritance. Yeah. Lives among the pigs. Does what he wants to. Lives according to his desires. Burns up his dad's inheritance. He's irreligious. We can say he's irreligious. And he goes, and all the obvious sins are his sins. He's he's he's, uh, he's dead, drunk, in a ditch. All the sexual sins are his. He's, he's profligate with his money in every way. What about the second character? What about the second son? He's angry. He's what?
1: He's angry.
0: He's angry. When uh, he's working hard. Yeah. He's working hard, he's obeying the rules, he's performing morally. Would he be irreligious in this context, especially Jesus is talking into? And who was Jesus talking to specifically? Why did he start telling the three parables, the third of which is the crescendo of which is the, the prodigal son, but there are two before that. Who did he tell all three parables to primarily, to teach them a lesson? Pharisees. Pharisees. And to teach them a lesson, I mean to, to love them, to show them what the love of God is. The Pharisees, and they were the ultimate religious. They were the ultimate, they made their lives about keeping God's law, or so they thought. And he's telling it to them, and the second son is really, is really <coughs> characterizing the Pharisees, who were so, so zealously religious. And if anyone could have earned their own merit before God, their own good standing before God, their own righteousness before God, uh, by their own religion and their religious um, uh, adherence, it would, have been, it would have been the Pharisees. Um, but what is the second son? You said he's angry. Exactly right. Why? It, we could dig into that a little bit and I'm digging this more than I wanted to and it's fine. It's good. I think it's good that we do this up front. Why was he angry?
1: He thinks he, he thought he had married, he had earned his father's love and favor and it angered him to see his father love the prodigal so lavishly even though he had basically told him by for
0: some for yeah, and do you... Okay, so we know that he's a son because of the parable, right? Um, and yet, there's a, there's a word that's revealing... Um, is he, Let me ask the question. Is he acting like a son, or is he acting like a servant in, by his behavior, by the way that he's working, and by his reaction? Like a, a, a servant. And there's a word in there where he... The father comes out and he says, all this time I've been slaving away. He uses that word. I've been slaving away. He doesn't see himself as a son that has every. What does the father say to him? Everything I have is yours. But he's not living like that. He's living like he's having to work hard to earn. And therefore, because he's worked hard, the father, here's the thing, owes him. You see, religion is manipulation. Religion is if I do this, gods or God, you have to then do this. And if they don't, if the gods don't do this, or if God doesn't do this, if I worship the Lord and I'm religious and I'm doing all the things that I think God, then God owes me something. And then I start suffering in a way that, and I keep suffering, then guess who I'm going to get angry with. Or if I see someone who really doesn't deserve, they don't deserve it like I do. God's love, and they get God's lavish love freely, like the prodigal son, I'm going to be ticked, because what about me? And so one of the things that Keller helps us see is that this is basically these two um, chapters, the end of chapter one that we looked at last week, and then in this chapter, it's the same lesson Paul's giving two different crews of people. The first is the prodigal son in, in Romans one eighteen through 32, and the second in this text we just read is the the older son, who's kept all the rules, but here's the thing. He's just as unrighteous. He's just as unable to stand before God in his own, unright- in his own righteousness. And it's still, it's just as, but, but the thing is, he can't see it. Often the religious can't see that as much. Um, the person falling down uh, in a ditch, dead, drunk, or committing all sorts of sexual sins can often see, man, I really, or, or we looked at some of the more, some of the egregious, they're no, they're, uh, they don't keep us from God any more than any other sin, but he, Paul in, in Romans 1, 26 to 28 talks about homosexual sins, and we talked about some last week, why does he do that, because they're this flagrant example, right, um, of people rebelling against God, and, and it's unnatural, um, so a lot of times, and our culture has turned this on its head, and we talked about this last week, and this is not the point of this week, but those folks know um, that they're in rebellion. And so sometimes the gospel pops. But with uh, those that are keeping the rules, a lot of times they're inoculated against the gospel because they think, yeah, God and I are, God and I are good. Until pain enters their life or they see the gospel actually displayed, they see someone get saved that's irreligious or something. And so they are just as much in need of the gospel as the as the irreligious um, as the atheist as as the person that's that's struggling with egregious, falling into egregious sin um, and their righteous their own righteousness will will stand them in as poor a stead as those in in chapter one okay so the problem we confronted with uh, with last week's text in Romans one eighteen through thirty two is that god's wrath is will be revealed against all unrighteousness of men and we talked about how what was the most I said, what are, what's the most terrifying word in this? And some people said wrath, and that is a terrifying word, God's wrath. But what, what, what's the word I said that was the most terrifying word in that sentence to me? Oh. It, yeah, in Romans 1.18, God's righteousness is revealed against all unrighteousness. All ungodliness and unrighteousness. Been, all We have to hang on to that, because remember, Paul's continuing that thought here in Romans 2. Just because we're in the second chapter doesn't mean he's starting a new thought. He's just moving his guns from non-Jews to Jews now. So that he can show, so that he can capture everyone under God's wrath and say, you can't hide in your own perceived righteousness. Nobody can. There has to be another way. And that's why the gospel. Remember, we have to remember, before that, before saying God's wrath is revealed against all righteousness, what does he say right before that? The thesis of his book in Romans 1:16 and 17. The just shall live by faith. That's right, the just shall live by faith. And the gospel shows us God's Righteousness, but it's not his righteousness to condemn us. It's his righteousness to save us. It's God's righteousness for us. It's a righteousness, hey, not from Taylor, not from Rachel, not from Jordan. It's a righteousness from God. That's the only righteousness that will be able to save us. And somehow through the gospel, God is able to allow that to be pushed into your account through faith. So that's what Paul's driving after. So now he's going, okay, if you're resting on any other righteousness, you're toast because you won't be able to receive and rest in God's righteousness, right? So he, he trains his guns now on the Jews. And uh, we have to hang on to the fact that here in this section, this really difficult section in some ways that we read, uh, differences of opinion, lots of kind of inscrutable, not inscrutable verses, but some tough ones, um, that Paul says, God's righteousness will be revealed against all unrighteousness of men. All. All. Um, Okay, at the end of our text last week in verse 28, Romans 1, 28, Paul writes, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Um, what follows is a litany of all sorts of wickedness, right? So if you look at verses 28 and 29, there's that litany in Romans 1 of all sorts of wickedness. Every kind, literally, Paul says every kind of wickedness. As Paul gives them up to a debased mind, what manifests itself in the lives of of those that he gives up to their heart's desires. Wickedness, covetousness, malice, envy, gossip, slander, pride, boastfulness, foolishness, ruthlessness, and so on. And you can read the list for yourself. The point is this. This is what happens. Here's my point. This is what happens when God gives people up to their own devices to do what they want and not what God wants. He leaves us alone, which is just what we want in our own sin. We want to be left alone to do what we want to do. To rule our own little lives and maybe the lives of anyone else who will let us rule their lives. Or not let us. Right? Um, so let's, let me put it a different way. God is light and life and love and goodness itself. He's the origin of these things. Any of these things that there is is from him. Um, what happens when he removes himself from our presence? He, what happens when he leaves us alone? What happens when light leaves? Darkness. What happens when love leaves? Hatred. What happens when uh, life leaves? Death. What happens when uh, goodness leaves? Evil. So this is what remains when God leaves. We shouldn't be surprised. When God leaves us to ourselves, we are cold planets orbiting, not the sun, but a void. Not even orbiting, just floating in space, unmoored, cold and dead, which is essentially what I just described is essentially the way that C.S. Lewis pictures hell At the beginning of his fictional uh, novel, The Great Divorce. Just cold, dead, drifting planets getting farther and farther and farther and farther away from each other. Um, So this is where Paul leaves us at the end of chapter one of his greatest letter. C.S. Lewis and the Allegory of Love, which he wrote pretty soon after he became a believer, um, it was, it was a, it was a work of, um, his, his profession, not of, not of Christianity. Truth, he says, he says in that work, he says in the allegory of love, truth and falsehood are opposed. Okay. We know that truth and falsehood are opposed, but truth is the norm, not of truth only, but, but of falsehood also. Let me read that again. Truth and falsehood. See, I have a, I don't know if Chase did it. I bet this, this looks like the work of Chase. Maybe Oh no, it's got a fuller thing, but he would do something like that. Leave me a whiteboard. I'll maybe use it today. <laughs> truth and falsehood are opposed, but truth is the norm, not, not of truth only, but of falsehood also. right? Um, so in other words, let me, let me kind of try to break that down some. Um, how do you get darkness? It's like the lights out You remove the light. OK um, How do you get light? Not by removing darkness, no. right? It's different. Just as darkness is absence of light, let's keep keep going with the four things we mentioned, so evil is absence of good, or a privation, but also a perversion of good. Right? But if darkness is removed, more darkness. You don't get light. Unlike when light is removed, you get darkness. This shows us that light is primary. If you remove it, there's darkness. Life is primary. Remove it, there's death. Good is primary. Remove it or derange it, there's badness or evil. God alone is first or primary. And God is good. All good comes from him. If that is changed or moved away from, badness, darkness, death, result. And that's, that's one of the things Paul, Paul, one of the things Paul's showing us in, in Romans 1. Um, in chapter 1, so the last thing we want, the last thing we want is for God to leave us alone, to leave us to our own devices. That's the last thing that we want. We want his intervention. And the gospel is, is quintessential divine intervention. Without God stepping in, invading our lives, we would just be completely lost. Completely lost. It requires, anything other than death requires God's intervention in our lives. We want that. We want that. As painful as it might be. We want the surgeon's intervention if we have cancer. We want the dentist's intervention if we have uh, a cavity. It's going to be painful, but you're going to live. In chapter 1, Paul's been firing away, like I said, at the Gentile world, the pagans, and now he's, he's got his guns trained um, on the Jews. They are not exempt. Um, and we can really relate a lot here. Uh, you may have come in tonight or last week or whatever, and be, you may be irreligious and, you know, maybe don't believe in a God, and, and I'm so glad you're here if, if that's the case. But you, the greater chance that we are following the Lord in some capacity or trying to or somewhat religious or go to church. So, this is, this is it's really a lot easier. It's easy in some ways to relate to. Easy for me last week, probably for all of us, because this list of sins, I can relate to every single one of them. Absolutely. Um, but here, man, he really hits the church in a lot of ways. In 2 1, he picks up this way, therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Um, so, again, as we talked about, therefore, he's, he's coming at us from from chapter 1, which we've talked about. Okay, so let's just go through um, these verses bit by bit here. And um, verse 2, let's look at verse 2. When we say that, so let me read it. Uh, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's talking about those in chapter 1, right? When we say God is a just judge, this is bad news, not just for others, but for us as well. right? If we point the finger, and he's really talking to folks who are good at pointing the finger, um, the Jews they saw the uh, they saw the world as the world and then the Jews and people groups have a tendency to do that. Um, but the Jews they called they had a nickname for everyone that wasn't Jew. And does anyone know what it was in Jesus' day? In Paul's day, Gentile dogs, Gentile dogs. I was yeah, the unclean. Yeah, big time. Big time. And yet, and, 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 um, and so often we can do that in the church, right? We can be known, Christians can be known as folks that kind of look, look out and go, oh, what a horrible mess. And preachers can preach, and I can be guilty of this. Preachers can preach, and I can be guilty of thinking this, of uh, looking out and going, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. That's the problem out there, as opposed to going, wait a minute. It's me. It's like Chetterson's, G.K. Chesterton said, right? I am the problem. My heart's the problem. This thing should convict me first. And that's what Paul wants to do, is he wants to train his guns on every person that, that's listening to his letter to the Romans and go, I'm the problem. I'm, I'm just as much in trouble as everybody in chapter 1, no matter how religious I am, no matter how many oracles God's given me, no matter how focused my, my life is around the law. Um, the old adage, if we, point, if we point the finger, we're in trouble because we're deceived, and so because we have four fingers pointing back at us. Why? Why? Um, Chapter three, I mean, verse three, sorry, verse three of Romans two, because we do the same things we accuse others of being guilty of, Paul says. Um, if we go back to the list in Romans one, 29, 29 and 30, so Paul says, look, you're guilty of the same things you accuse others of. If we go back to that list that is for irreligious or wrongly religious pagan people, man, let's just go through them briefly. All manner of unrighteousness. And he just gives us a a litany. Evil. Okay. Covetousness. I'm going to raise my hand there. You know, let me, let me, let's do this. Raise your hand if, uh, (laughs) raise your hand, raise your hand as I read these and I'm playing along. If you have never struggled with any, if you've never been guilty of of this sin, covetousness. Like, that's...
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no.
0: Keep, raise, if your hand goes up, that means I've never experienced this personally, right? Covetousness, you know? And what did Paul say about covetousness elsewhere? He said, I didn't know what it, what it was to... Uh, what does he say? To covet until the law told me thou shalt not covet. I didn't, I didn't realize I was coveting until the law showed it to me, right? And, uh, and, what, and what number in the Decalogue, and the Ten Commandments, is thou shalt not covet? Nine. One more. Ten. Yeah, good. Right. That's close. And so, the fir- and the first command is, thou shall have no other gods before me. Right? So, who's ever, who's ever, um, for his whole life, or even for a whole day, put God first in his affections, and his thoughts, and his devotion, and not had other things that he's given his heart to, that he's lived for, that he's put, hooked his identity into. So, I, I break the first one. The first one is kind of something that everything else follows from the first one. So, if you break the first one, you break all the rest. Coveting is the tenth, and in the same way, it casts its net back over the other nine. And basically, coveting, I could be coveting right now, and you don't know. I could be coveting right now. Maybe I am. You don't know because it's a sin of the heart. It manifests itself outwardly, but it's, a, it's an invisible sin. It's a sin of the heart, and that's what God cares about. And so the fact that it's tenth shows us, and the fact that the first one is very much about the core of who we are. God wants our core. He wants, he wants not just our external obedience. He wants the most important part of who we are. He wants our mind, our heart, our bodies, our soul. And if I'm coveting, I'm committing a sin from the heart, I'm, I'm saying I should have that, that person shouldn't, and they should be, something bad should happen to them because I deserve that. Then what it's saying is it casts its net back over the others along with the first. It's casting its net forward over the others. is saying that we... we we can break and we do break every single one of those commands from the heart. And Jesus helps us see that, right? When he goes after adultery and murder, what does he, what does he do in the Sermon on the Mount? If I've never committed adultery, and maybe some of us have. If I've never murdered, and maybe somebody, somebody, some of us have. But if I've never done those things, what does Jesus do? Yeah, and what does he show us? It's the true, the true unpacking of those commands, murder and adultery in, in particular. Your
1: heart.
0: Yeah, so how am I, where does murder start? Yeah, raise your hand if raise your hand if you never hated someone. I'm the only one raising my hand just saying that. Of course, I've I hate. I hesitate to say it on record. Hopefully, I don't hate daily, but I hate all the time, all the time. Even my own family. Guilty. Sometimes the most, the people I'm close to the most. It's a it's an illustration of how evil my heart is in the flesh. Right? There's nothing good in the flesh. Adultery. I could say the same thing, probably, about... Well, how, how do, what, where does you say adultery starts from? The heart? And what's the sort of... How does he tease that out? If you look at a woman with lust, never Who can raise their hand and say they have never... Okay, what guy? All right, so... <laughs> um, we can't do that for a could? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't raise my hand. No way. Are you kidding me? Again, I could say the same thing. It's like all the time it's a struggle. All the time. And it's, if, if it's a struggle, that's I'm doing great if I'm struggling i'm not struggling i'm not fighting i'm losing so um so okay back through the list just much more quickly but and this will help us the fact that we slowed down and went through some of that stuff so covetousness guilty malice wow full of not he didn't just say they do this now and again full of envy murder and again if you thought five minutes ago you you could raise your hand up now you know you can't Man, because I have wanted to kill people. I've literally said out loud, I want to kill you. Strife, oh, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers. You know, saying something of someone that's hurtful uh, and, and, and possibly untrue, right? Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Wow, we could just, disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, guilty of every single one. Guilty of every single one. So, yes, me. Uh, it's, uh, it's
1: powerful.
0: it is. I'm glad to hear that because that's exactly what you're supposed to be feeling right now. And I'm so glad to hear that. And we don't want to stay there, but we do want to let this text deeply convict us because you know you're in trouble with this text if you don't feel that way. You know you're in trouble with this text if you can read it and go, yeah, but that's not me. Because that's exactly what Paul says in chapter 2 is, if you're saying that's not you, you're wrong. It's you. Remember, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All. That means we're all in deep doo-doo. We are all in trouble. He is a just God and sin and evil have to be done away with and fully punished. Okay. So can we honestly exempt ourselves from these sins? We cannot. And even if you're, if you're religious, irreligious, we're all in trouble. Okay. So let me see here. I've got this note. I want to see if I want to share it. I've already kind of talked about it. Um, in verse three, Paul says, Do you suppose, oh man, and that's kind of where the controversy is. Who's this man? Is the way Lloyd Jones talks about it. Who's this man? Is this man, this hypothetical man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Who's this man? Is this man a a pagan or is this man a Jewish religious man? Possibly a Pharisee. Who's this hypothetical man? And I think. I've told you what I believe, and um, I'll give you some reasons, some more reasons for it in a sec, and that's what Lloyd-Jones Lloyd- and Keller also settle on. Um, so, again, Paul doesn't speak directly to the Jew, obviously to the Jew, until 2.17, but I think here he's speaking to Jews after having had his guns on the rest of the world in chapter 1. Um, I agree with Lloyd-Jones that verse 11 argues in favor of this being the Jew that Paul uh, is primarily speaking to for the whole of chapter 2. What's verse 11? For God shows no partiality. And there was, again, there was a real feeling among the Jews of this day that God preferred the Jews to the rest of the world. They were God's chosen people, but they, the idea was from that, wrongly extrapolated, well, God prefers us. And, that's, and Paul just says, that's abs- and he's speaking, that's, this is a bit of evidence that he's not, that he's blowing that up. He's saying, no, God is impartial. God is absolutely just, and every bit of unrighteous has to be punished. It can't come through the type of people you are. God's favor cannot come to you through ethnicity. It can't come to you through you're going to church. It can't come to you through the family you're born into, even if your parents are believers, through your moral behavior. It can't come to you through any of those things. God is impartial. Um, yeah, so the Jews thought God was partial to them. Um. Paul says no here, and Peter says no in the text that we just looked at yesterday, right? In 1 Peter 1.17, Peter says the exact same thing. The gospel is based on this. God does not show partiality to those who are saved and adopted heirs. As his adopted heirs, excuse me. God does not show partiality to those who are saved and his adopted heirs, consequently. He shows his justice. He shows his righteousness through the gospel. He shows his justice to them by showing them how great a price had to be paid to redeem them. Um, The Old Testament history of the Jews, just very briefly, the Old Testament history of the Jews shows us, just in a sort of wide swath, kind of zoom out kind of way, it's a bit of empirical evidence to show us that the Jews stand guilty in their own performance, in their own perceived righteousness. They stand very guilty just in their recorded history before God. We talked about this last week. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you understand this, that the Old Testament is, is, is basically uh, a massive indictment against the Jews for their, for their repeated unrighteousness, such that what happened to the Jews? They, they, they rebelled against God so often and so egregiously that what did he do to them? He warned them over and over again, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, if you, keep, if you keep running away from me, if you keep flouting me, if you keep were disregarding my law and hating me what did they what did he have to do to them he used Titus to destroy the temple and scatter them That's right and even before that in the Old Testament in 587 BC under Nebuchadnezzar what hey he exiled them just like he exiled Adam and Eve east out of the garden he did the same thing with Israel he exiled them east out of the garden land to Babylon he brought them back in his faithfulness so the whole and that's at the end of the Old Testament so the whole testament basically is is um, Just the Jews continually showing, and it starts, well, it it starts with Abraham. Even though he's found faithful because he trusts in God, he's trying to sell his wife downriver with the first chance he can get. So, um, but he he was found faithful, um, and but over and over again, the history of the Jews is one showing that they cannot stand on their own righteousness. Right? Um, How about the Jews in Jesus day? The most, how about the most religious, the ones who follow the law the most, the Pharisees? Could they, were they keeping the law well enough to stand in God's favor on their own? No. They crucified Jesus. They cruci- the most religious were the ones who were the tip of the spear in hating God so much when he came to them that they crucified him. So religion can't save us. Even the true religion. Now that's a bit. I have to put a bit of a caveat on that.
1: It's so hard.
0: Well, and it is the true religion, but misinterpreted, misinterpreted the true religion can lead. Did lead the Jews in Jesus day to think, well, based on our own law keeping, we can we can curry God's favor. We can measure up to God, and that is actually not a true reading of the true religion, which we we'll, which we'll see. And that's one of the things that Paul wants, wants us to see here. Um, So not being irreligious or egregiously sinful, that's chapter one of Romans, but now the subtlety of sin in chapter two um, is what we see here. So let me just use an illustration here from Walker Percy's, I didn't have time to pull it off the shelf, I don't even know where it is right now, but Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos, he gives an illustration that I think is helpful here. Um, I can walk into a room full of people and they can detect things in me that I, who live with myself, I, I, fancy, I fancy myself a pretty decent know of myself, I can walk into a room full of complete strangers, and within three to five minutes, maybe less, they can know things about me that I don't even, they can see things in me, pouring out of me, seeping out of me, hanging on me that I can't even see in myself. Okay? So, things like Arrogance. The thing that we, the sin that we're the most blind to, right? Arrogance. And, the, and, the, and the, really the root of all, all other sins. Um, pride. Um, so arrogance, vanity, lust, things I can't detect in myself. In some fundamental ways, these people can know me better than I know me. And I live with me. Why is the question he asks. And he does it in a really jo- jocular, uh, funny way. Way, but he makes a serious point. Why is this the case? Why is it the case that I can live with myself and not know myself in some seriously fundamental ways, as, in some serious ways, as much as complete strangers who just I pop in and they go, "Oh, that's on that guy. That that's that guy's this way." Why? Why? Why are we like this? We
1: lie to ourselves
0: about who we are. We suppress the truth in our righteousness, and ultimately. The simple answer is because of our sin. It's because of our sin. This is what sin does, right? Sin suppresses these things. It hides these uglies about me. Um, I I exult in the wonderful things about me, but the uglies, I do my utmost. I put a lot of energy into suppressing and hiding and pushing down. We can see into the far reaches of space. This is, I'm not quoting Percy here, but he he talks about this. We can see into the far reaches of space. We can build bridges, do brain surgery, uh, but we don't know that we're proud. Selfish. Eaten up with greed and envy. But again, someone who knows us for three minutes can see that these things are true about us, but not about themselves. They might see it in us, but they probably can't see it about themselves. But I can see it about them. <laughs> why again? What is, why is that dynamic? It's the same answer. It's the same answer, right? The closer my own, uh, the the closer my own behavior touches on. My guilt before Almighty God, the more energy, the more blind I am to it in myself because of my sin, and the more I, energy I put into pushing it down. Um, they can see you, and you can see them, but we cannot see ourselves. The bad stuff, I mean. Why? What so blinds us to faults in ourselves, but magnifies our awareness of them in others? What power and dynamic is this? And Paul has talked about it. It's sin. It's like bad breath, right? Only you don't know that you have it. Everyone around you can smell it. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's like, well, that's when it's really bad. You know, that's a grace. It's like, wow, I'm even grossing myself out here. Okay. But uh, sin is that way. Yeah. Sin is that way. And Lloyd-Jones talks about how this happens on a corporate level, too, in politics. You know, every side is basically saying the other, about the other side the same sorts of things. Like, what idiots? I can't believe they can't see this. That's, and I'm not saying that's always sin acting on a, on a, on a corporate um, level in politics, but a lot of times it is. It's just individual. It's a bunch of sinners doing, doing that sort of thing with the opposition, right? There needs to be more um, self-understanding, self-awareness, more question-asking, more coming across the aisle. So verses 4 through 5, we can think that God um, doing nothing to us, not judging us, letting us do as we please, giving us over, is because he either doesn't care, says Paul, or because he approves uh, of us in our actions. But Paul says no, emphatically. He's not judging you now so that you cannot be destroyed, but see your sin and repent. It's because of his kindness, Paul says, that he's not judging you. Not because you're awesome and you're doing great. That's not why. But your superior attitude about yourself and your lifestyle, God rightly judges them, not, uh, but not me because I'm living in a way that pleases him. No, is actually you storing up God's wrath that he will one day pour out on you justly. That's what Paul's saying. Um, this picture would be comic if it weren't so horrible. People who think God will judge others but not them are collecting... Again, and people that are saying, "I don't," I'm not saying you can't you can't be sitting here, you can't be saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the people that Paul's talking to here that are that are trusting in their own righteousness, very religious people, um, they think God will judge others but not them, and because their their performance, their righteousness before God, are collecting His fury toward them like one who collects cans of food in case of food storage shortage, and instead of food in the cans, it's God's wrath, and one day He will open all those cans on you, cans that you have stored and stacked, is kind of the image Paul gives, and he will feed them to you, those cans of wrath. It's just this horrible image. Um, and so this isn't in here, but the, the, as I talk about this, the, the parable comes to mind where Jesus, and maybe, maybe it's not a parable, maybe um, he's looking at two people that are praying at the temple, and it could be a parable. Either way, you, you guys can tell me. I can't recall. But um, he's looking at a Pharisee, uh, a religious leader, and then he's looking at a tax collector, right? And the, what does the Pharisee say as, as he's praying to God? Yeah, thank, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. I do it all right. I keep all the rules. He's trusting in what? Is he trusting in God? He's not trusting in God's righteousness. He's trusting in his own righteousness. And what does Jesus say about that man? Did he walk away? Acquitted? He didn't see that he had anything to be acquitted from. He thought, I'm doing everything necessary for God's favor. Myself. But what did he say about the second man? The second man was a clear lawbreaker. Knew it and wouldn't even look up to heaven because he he knew that he had broken the law so egregiously. He knew that he was a sinner so much. And what was his prayer like?
1: Lord
0: Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what did Jesus say about him? He walked away justified, right with God, not through his own rightness, because he was calling on the rightness of another, right? Okay, so verses five through six, God's judgment is righteous. It is right. It's never wrong. It's never too much or too little. It always pays people precisely according to their deeds. He will render to each one according to his works, these are some really controversial verses. Verse 7, To those who by patience and well-doing excuse me, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And he goes on. Um, so some people, I mean, again, you have to dig in here, but are some surprising things about these verses, but he will render to each one according to his works. Is Paul preaching a works-based salvation here? Kind of seems like it. But it's like Keller says, you have to give Paul a little credit because he's just written a few verses before, the exact opposite of that. But none of us can, of us can stand before God based on our own works. So what's he doing here? Because it seems like, well, if you look at that verse, it's actually a verse that Paul takes from, and you guys will have notes in your Bibles, but it's from Psalm 62. And if you look at Psalm 62... The context of Psalm 62, whenever there's a verse in the, in the New Testament that the New Testament writers take from the Old Testament, always go, if you can, always go to that. Especially if you're studying and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. I want to wonder what that, uh, go to that... Go to the context of, as Jordan did at last week or the week before, from Habakkuk, from the week before, from Habakkuk 2.4. And that really helped us. Um, Psalm 62 isn't talking about the guy that has it all together and is righteous based on his own performance. He's a guy... Psalm 62 is a man who clearly looks to the Lord to save him and trusts in the Lord. He's saved through faith. He's saved through trusting in God's capacity to save, in God's word, in God's, the firmness of God's promise, and in God's character. Okay? So, actually, as we press into this, one of the things that Paul's, one of the undercurrents of this that Paul is is building toward is that uh, there is the type of person, the only type of person that's righteous is the one who looks to God and trusts in the Lord and looks to God's provision of righteousness and God's mercy and God's undeserved favor. It's all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, you think about the sacrificial system. You think about Abram, the father of faith, who looked to the promises of God and said, I can't do it, but you can. I believe you. And Paul is taking us back there Time after time, and he's doing it here in Psalm 62. um, The one who looks to God will be rewarded. Not the one who looks to himself and goes, I got this. I'm just going to perform. I'm just going to, whether irreligious or religious, right? I'm just going to, I can be just as lost if I'm religious. If I'm saying, it's all up to me. I'm going to keep these rules. And then God's going to give me his salvation, his favor. No, no, that's not the way it works, Paul says. He wants to blow that up. Um, so he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Did, the, did that strike anyone? Verse 7, is, that really struck me as a strange verse. Does that, does that, did that nab anyone else? I mean, when he says to those who by patience and well-doing seek for, I'm not expecting what he gives right there. He's commending those who seek for glory and honor in immortality. That's, that's interesting. Any comments on that? I feel like sometimes in the church we're encouraged not to seek those things, but obviously that's wrong because Paul's saying, no, that's a mark of godliness. Yeah,
1: what first comes to mind is that seeking one's glory. I mean, we want to glorify God all the time. Right. We lift him up, and when it says seek glory, seek for glory, like... Oh, wait, I don't want to seek for glory for myself. But, right. But maybe for what
0: brings God glory. For what brings God glory. And maybe, yeah, yeah and so your, your instincts are right, I think, in saying, like, it's not about, Trump, I don't want to seek to, trumpet, to be trumpeted and have the spotlight on me. It's probably what, not what Paul's talking about. Mm-hmm. But for God to be glorified, but also what's glorification. Yeah. Right? It's the, it's the sort of finished process of God's salvation. It's when I can't sin anymore when I don't want to sin anymore because I see Christ face to face and everything that he's given to me that will absolutely be played out in the life of every blood-bought believer because of Christ and his faithfulness will be finished when we see him face to face. And that's called being glorified. Romans 8. Which, which Paul will get to more in detail. But so we should actually, and again, this kind of ties into what we were talking about yesterday in First Peter, right? Where actually Paul, Peter says in First Peter 1, verse 17, in the beginning of that text, he says, we got to live in light. We got to set our hope, not partially, not 99%, in this life, right now, today, and for the rest of my, all of my breaths until I die, until I go to the grave, I ought to set my hope fully on the favor from God, on the grace from God that's coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I ought to live now fully, fully looking forward to, getting all my strength for today, looking forward to the fact that Christ is in me, that he's reigning, that he's coming again, and then I'm going to see him face to face and he's going to make everything all right. He's going to make everything better than all right. He's going to make everything new. He's going to wipe away my tears. That will. Peter is saying, put all of your eggs in that basket. And so that I think there's some of that wrapped up in this. And there's also a sense of real reward, not that we've earned, but that Christ has earned, and that because of I think this is big time wrapped up in this. The life of faith is one that as you stand on the righteousness God provides in Christ, you start. To, you have an alien righteousness that's, given, that's received by faith. The imputed is the, is the theological term. The imputed righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. It's over you like a garment. But sanctification is that as you walk the life of faith in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he actually, he's in you, and you become more and more like him, and um, and and actually, um, as you live the life of faith, trusting him and obeying him, and being fruitful in your abiding in him and doing good work, not to earn something, but because you're his child, and because he says, "Obey me if you love me." There is real reward in the next life that will never end, there is real reward for that. And that ought to be something that motivates us, and that's not talked about much in the Protestant church. Um, It's not not us earning salvation. It's us living in the salvation that Christ has provided. It's actually living in Christ himself and living a life of faith and and trusting him and, and allowing him to crucify our flesh and following him and giving up everything to follow him. And... It will affect the way that we live now will ring throughout eternity. it will absolutely affect um, the stations that we have, the responsibilities that we have, what the new creation looks like for us. So I was just a bit surprised by verse seven. I think it really challenged me in a good way um, and really complimented what we looked at yesterday from Peter. So we ought to be really looking to these things and and Lewis. You know, Lewis has a bunch of wonderful things to say about this in particular. It, all throughout his, his sermon slash essay, The Weight of Glory, but really in the beginning, too, where he says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. He says, we are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to Desire. Desire. And because, you know, Peter comes along and says, we left everything to follow you. Will we be rewarded? And he goes, you don't even understand. I'm, this is a Taylor translation, but you will get in this life 100 times what you sacrifice and let go of. And in the next life, you, I can't even tell you how. In the next life, eternal life, unending, in amazing ways that I can't even explain, basically. Um, and then Lewis finishes that thought by saying, he actually doesn't finish it. There's more. We are half-hearted creatures. This is the part that, that we all are familiar with. Um, he said, it would seem that our, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Um, and he goes on, but wonderful stuff, and I think it ties in here to what Paul's saying in, in verse 7. Um. So God's judgment is all, is righteous. It is right. It's never wrong. It's never too much or too little. It always pays people precisely according to their to their deeds. Let me read this from, from Lewis just to kind of just twist the knife a bit in all of us. And then we're going to we'll we'll move again to verse 7 and then um, rush to a close and then time for Q&A. Okay? Um, Lewis says this in Problem of Pain, I think it is. He says, Christ takes for granted that men are bad. Remember how he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, um, you who are evil, if you can give good gifts to your kids, he just calls them them evil straight up. Because we're evil. We're evil (laughs) outside of the the new birth. We are born into absolute rebellion and deadness. Um, Christ takes for granted that men are bad. Until we really feel this assumption of his to be true, though we are part of the world he came to save, we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. Okay? Wow. We lack the first condition for understanding what he's talking about. And when men attempt to be Christians without this preliminary consciousness of sin, the result is almost bound to be a certain resentment against God, as to one always inexplicably angry. Can you see why I included this quote now? This Romans 1 and 2 God just seems mad. Maybe that's because I don't understand my own condition, right? Lewis goes on. Most of us have at times felt a secret sympathy with the dying farmer who replied to the vicar's dissertation on repentance by asking, what harm have I ever done him? Meaning God. And Lewis says, this is the real rub. The worst we have done to God is to leave him alone. Why can't he return the compliment? Just leave me alone, God. Why not live in that live? What call has he of all beings to be angry? It's easy for him to be good. Okay, so that's the idea of the farmer. That's how a lot of us feel, especially when we read this kind of thing. Why does God have to be wrathful? Why can't he just love us, right? Now Lewis goes on. Now at the moment when a man feels real guilt, moments much too rare in our lives, all these blasphemies vanish away. Much we may feel can be excused to human infirmities, but not this. This incredibly mean and ugly action which none of our friends would have done, Which even such a thoroughgoing little rotter as X, some other person, would have been ashamed of. Which we would not for the world allow to be published. So something I've done that I don't want anyone to know about. We truly know that was evil. I did something like that last week. Okay? Now I'm going to tell you what it is. True to the quote. (laughs) At such a moment... We really do know that our character, as revealed in this action, is and ought to be hateful to all good men. And if there are powers above man to them, a God who did not regard this with unappeasable distaste would not be a good being. We cannot even wish for such a God. We can't wish for a God who wouldn't hate what we did. Okay? He says, it is like wishing that every nose in the universe were abolished. That smell of hay or roses or the sea should never again delight any creature because our own breath happens to stink. Okay, so even if we wished for the sake of the fact that I've just committed this atrocity, that God didn't care about it, we really wouldn't want that kind of God. It wouldn't be worthwhile, is what he's saying. A God who didn't hate that. When we merely say, he finishes, when when we merely say that we're bad, the wrath of God seems a barbarous doctrine. So if, if we're just listening to these things and not identifying with them and hearing, and hearing all these litany of sins and going, man, I'm, I'm seeing all this badness, and God's reaction it seems over the top. When we merely say that we're bad, the wrath of God seems a barbarous doctrine. As soon as we perceive our badness, it appears inevitable. A mere corollary from God's goodness. Okay, Let's. we've talked about verse 7. Let's move to verse 8 and then move with speed through the rest of these and then Q&A. What, verse 8, what characterizes those who will get God's fury? Those who contrast with, with the glory seekers of verse 7. What, what, what characterizes them? They're self-seeking and... And they obey unrighteousness, right? Um, and they do not obey the truth, right? They're self-seeking, they disregard God's truth. They're self centered, and they disregard God's truth. Verses nine through ten, what's Paul's point here? What's Paul's point in verses nine through ten?
1: That's,
0: That's right. It's not about ethnicity, as we said earlier. Race, nationality, doesn't matter if you're ethnically a Jew. God doesn't give extra points for this. He isn't impressed. He gave wonderful things to the Jews. He gave, he gave salvation. He gave what he's truly like. And the fact that he's a God who saves people who don't deserve it to the Jews. Why? So that they could call the rest of the world dogs? Did he give that to the church so we could say, hey, that world out there is going to hell in a handbasket. You guys are horrible. You're what's wrong with the world. No.
1: He,
0: he gave them his very self so that they could show the rest of the world here's what God's like and all, bring them in. But they failed, and so Jesus, the true Israel, came and did what Israel failed to do, right? Which was God's plan all along, right? Um, so, yes, as Jordan said, Uh, God doesn't give extra points for being a Jew. He isn't impressed. He only looks at how we live, what we do. It's by their fruit you will know them, Jesus says. F.F. Bruce, famous New Testament guy, um, his comment on this passage is helpful. Let me read it. Paul's not teaching salvation by works here, but emphasizing God's impartiality as between Jew and Gentile. That's his point in this passage, right? Um, Hey, Gentile, you can't stand on your own work. You can't stand on your own behavior. You're toast. And Jews, same thing. In your, all of your law keeping, you're equally under God's just wrath. Uh, Peter's surprise confession in Acts ten thirty four through 35. Truly, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What is the best way to fear God and to obey him? As we know it. It's a great question. <laughs> Is it to try to measure up to him on my own, with my own good work? My own behavior? Or well, what does he reveal to us? What's the best way to truly fear and obey him based on what he's revealed? I
1: think, about, uh, I think it's
0: Psalm 130. Where, um says that uh, he forgives us so that he may be feared um, yeah so the, the recognition of how sinful I am the recognition of needing forgiveness makes me fear and yeah and I need it in spades and you've provided it in spades Lord I receive it I cling to it I believe in it and I'm telling the world about it that is the obedience God requires faith in his son that he sent to save us. It's not respectful to God to, to believe that he sent, to know about the idea that billions, millions hold, to believe that, oh, he sent a way for us to be saved because apparently that is the only way for us to be saved. And yet I'm going to try my own way. I'm going to disregard that and I'm going to try to obey God on my own steam. Paul is saying that is not only, does that not work? You're just storing up for yourself unrighteousness. You're just storing up for yourself wrath from God. He has provided a way. I'm importing some of this. Because Paul Paul gets to that in a bit, but yes, um, the Reformation Study Bible says this. Let me quote this, and then we'll move through a couple more. Paul is not saying here is not denying here. Excuse me, what he elsewhere emphasizes. Just to, this is a sort of effort to clarify as we've gone through some of these difficult texts. Paul is not here denying what he elsewhere emphasizes, that salvation is a gift, not a reward. Only those who receive grace do in fact seek glory and honor and immortality, verse 7. Others are self-seeking, verse 8, and God and not God-honoring. Paul teaches that while salvation is by grace, this is a great sentence, I, I italicized it. Paul teaches that while salvation is by grace, that means God's work, God's favor. Paul teaches that while salvation is by grace, judgment is according to works. That's a great line. Paul teaches that while salvation is by grace, judgment is according to works. Do you want to be judged? Then stand before God, build your life on your own performance and your own works. You will be judged on those. God is perfectly fair. Or you can be judged on the works of another. Jesus, received by faith and pushed into your account. That's the language that Paul, that God uses in Genesis 15, that Paul talks about in Romans 4 coming up. Um, in other words, grace is God's work applied to us through faith, the gift received by faith. Without faith, God's work in Christ doesn't work for us. We will have to rely on our own work. And this is bad news in light of what Paul has said about God's righteous judgment and our own unrighteousness. As Mike Kruger, my old New Testament prof, likes to say, we are saved by works. He would write that up on the board, right? We talked about this before, I think. But he would write up on the First week in Sunday school, we are saved by works, true or false, <laughs> and you know it's a trap, <clears throat> and so you're toast, because you're like, I, I know it's false, but if I say false, and that's obvious, so I've been trained to say false, you know, my whole life, um, and, of course, it's true. You know, we are saved by works, just not our works. Okay. Your salvation wasn't just taken care of on the cross. It was constantly. Your salvation was taken care of in the every single act of, of righteous obedience of Jesus Christ in his life. His, not just does his death count for you in his sin payment. His life counts for you. His righteousness counts for you. If he had ever not obeyed the Father perfectly from the heart for one second we would all be lost. His righteousness counts for you. You receive that by faith, as well as the expiation, the wiping away of your sins. Is that your Yeah. I
1: think you have a double cure. Yeah. Save from wrath and
0: make me pure. Oh yeah, so good. Great lyrics, and I definitely think they apply to our, to our passage um, tonight. So verse 12, if we sin with the law, we will be judged by the law. If we sin, as we move to a close, if we sin not having the law, we will be judged not by the law. So, uh, but by, by, by what we do have, which Paul mentions in chapter one, an awareness, what do, what do what are those that don't have the law, non-Jews in, in this day, you know, uh, what did they have? About what did they know about God? How did God reveal to them? Not through the scriptures. Creation, creation and conscience, and Paul doesn't talk about, it, about conscience, but creation and conscience, the two Cs, external Things about who he is internally, and the two match up, right? Uh, We talked about some things that we can know about God through creation. The stars and mountains and oceans tell us he's powerful, majestic, and terrifying. Hummingbirds and seahorses of his whimsy, delicacy, attention to detail. Uh, A woman's face and body of his beauty. Sex of his love of pleasure and children. Children of his faith, of his playfulness. Eaters of his sense of humor, and so on. We could go on and on, right? Um, God is perfectly impeccably fair. He will not judge someone without the Bible based on what the Bible says. He will judge them based on what creation and their own moral compass says. And that will be plenty, Paul says in Romans one, that will be plenty to damn them if they do not flee to Christ. Um, God will never judge someone. This is one of of the things my spiritual father liked to say. He will never judge someone one millimeter beyond what they deserve. He is just. He is fair. Never, ever. We don't have to worry about that. He would never judge someone uh, based on the law if they don't have the law, right? Like Paul says, they have a law inside of them, and if they obey it, that shows that they have that law inside of them. And if they break it, they break it knowing what they're doing. Um. For as C.S. Lewis says, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in this way. They know the law of nature and they break it. Um, There's a a standard that uh, we apply to others that we constantly break ourselves even by our own standards, quite apart from God's, we stand guilty. And the way that this is illustrated by a guy named Francis Schaeffer was that he would say, imagine that there's an invisible tape recorder around your neck your whole life, and at the end, and it records every conversation. And at your end of your life, God plays it. And it's the, it's the standard of fairness. It's the things that you held other people to that you expected of them. And your own standard of fair play. And, and, and Lewis talks about this standard of fair play at the beginning of mere Christianity, but he said, based just on, forget God's standard, which is far higher and greater, even just based on your standard, what you know to be right, and what you're calling people to, to account for, other people around you, if you play that, and you're, you're held just to your own standard, you would break it. We, we would all break it thousands upon thousands of times. And so based, based on just your, our own standard, We stand guilty. We need help. We need cleansing, and we need new motivations, a new constitution, and we need not our own righteousness. Irreligious and religious alike. Um, In verse 13, Paul says that the doers of the law will be justified. And I need to finish um, for the sake of time, but let me see how I'm going to finish this. Um, So, verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Let's go ahead and read. um, Will somebody read Matthew 5? I probably should since. But Matthew 5, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. As we draw to a close here. Matthew 5. um, Starting in verse 17. 17 through 20. 17 through 20. Just whoever gets it. Just go ahead and read it out loud.
1: Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, Pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom
0: of heaven. And the Pharisees devoted their lives to keeping the law. And Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that, you'll never enter. The kingdom of heaven. So, what do we do with that? Paul in Romans two thirteen, the doers of the law will be justified. What do we do with this? Right. We we simply can't keep. Even as James says in James two ten, if you break the law in one place, you break the whole law because it's all of a piece. It all comes from God. And when you you can't offend a part of God. He's a simple being, like we talked about earlier. He's fully integrated and connected. And so when you break one law, it comes from a simple integrated being. And you offend. When you break one of God's laws, you offend not part of God. You offend all of God. It's all connected. It's like if I can, it's a prosaic illustration, but if you touch a part of a spider's web, the whole thing moves, right? And so that's why James was able to say that. So not only have we broken one law, but we break the heart of the law from the heart constantly, all the time. And, uh, and yet Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. But did they ever really keep the law? I mean, they broke it so bad that they crucified God himself. They were keeping the outward bits of the law, but they were missing, as he said, they were missing the weightier things that held it all together, justice and love. Thinking that thinking that they could keep it based on externals because they were relying on themselves, not on God. So, like you said, Jordan, um, we have to. Our righteousness has to be from somewhere else. It has to be alien. It has to be received. It has to be His received. But then, as I said earlier, once received, once we become new through faith, and He comes to live inside of us, and He pays for our sin, and He gives us His righteousness. Sanctification means that righteousness begins to truly change us and work its way into us. And we become more and more like Jesus. And our righteousness absolutely, because of his righteousness, absolutely exceeds that of the Pharisees. It's real, thanks to Jesus Christ. Um, And so only the doers of the law will be justified. And I think that's one of the—we have to be justified through his performance and through his righteousness and law-keeping— but once we are, and once we're brought in and born again, we are, going to, are, we are going to be shown to be His children through our fruit, through our following Him, through our obedience. There are going to be indications of um, the fact that we're His. Um, okay. Let me just read these last couple verses and see if there's anything... As we close, I've got a few more things here, but not too much, and then we'll, we'll be done. And then we can have a few minutes for questions. Sorry, I went over this time, guys. Um, so verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, we talked about that, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have a law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, let me just wrap with this. Those who say, I'm a Jew, I'm okay... No sense of my own sin and shortfall before God. No sense of the immense trouble I'm in. Paul's seeking to help them by hurting them, by showing them you can't rely on that. Um, I have neighbors. Let's bring it home. Literally right around me, my next door neighbors, I've heard them say things like, I'm Methodist. And, th- and this is a guy that does not go to church. He's a singing Christian. I mean, he's, um, but he's, he grew up Methodist, so that's his identity. And when he's talking to me, he goes, I'm a pastor, I'm Methodist. My wife's a catholic and that's a way his way of saying like we're good um and then another one who's he and his wife we're episcopalian same thing they don't go to church um a couple times a year i'm presbyterian personally oh i grew up presbyterian i'm reformed i'm, I'm calvinist i'm evangelical right or i'm progressive i'm liberal um we have these things that we, that we use to hide behind and to say, okay, I'm, I'm okay. You know, we, we, we have these ways in which uh, may, we may be Jewish, we may not be Jewish. Most of us here aren't, if any of us are. But we have these things that we cling to and think, okay, I'm, 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 I'm okay. Um, but th- there's no—and so in every single person I mentioned to my, to my own understanding, there's no sense of, of real sin, of real shortfall before God. It's like, I'm this, I'm okay. I checked the box. And that's really what Paul's speaking to here in Romans 2. There's no need for righteousness. There's no perceived need all around us. From the atheist, from the religious, um, from the intensely religious. There's no need, no perceived need for righteousness from God. Right after that verse in Romans 1.17, the gospel reveals a righteousness from God. The for, it says for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We've talked about the word all and how terrifying that is, but don't forget the link. The gospel reveals to us God's righteousness. The next word, and it is there in the Greek, in verse 18 is for the wrath of God is revealed. In other words, um, the glorious, the, the first step we have to take toward understanding the glory of the gospel in that it reveals to us God's righteousness to save us. Paul shows us in that little word, is for God's righteousness is, excuse me, his wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. Until we understand that we are trapped by the wrath of God against our own unrighteousness and we are in a deep pickle that we can't get out of, no matter how religious we are, until we get that, that, do you see how that understanding of his wrath revealed against our righteousness is actually directly linked to the miracle of the gospel showing us that God's righteousness comes to save us? Because we, have, we don't have any of our own righteousness to stand on. None. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. And we'll, we'll spend more time in it next week because he, he tries to knock two more legs out of the three-legged stool of the Jews, and we'll hit those, God willing, next week. Um, and then we'll move on to chapter 3 where he kind of does a coup de grace and kind of wraps it all up, and then he gives us the gospel in verse 21, and it's so glorious. Um, but we have to let this sit on us and truly convince us as it sinks deeply into our souls that we cannot stand before God by ourselves, and that is why the gospel is such good news. For the the religious need the gospel, mm-hmm. and the irreligious need the gospel. We all do. Um,
1: you know, kind of yeah. envisioning when these people, you know, after they pass away and approach God, and God questions them, it's like, "Oh, well, I'm Methodist." A Methodist. I'm Methodist. It's the same like, thing huh? That they respond to you by, "Oh dear." Right. That's nothing to stand on.
0: Right, right. And it's, yeah, it's for us to help them see that in love, uh, in in truth, that that's not going to, that's not a a firm foundation to stand on before the Almighty God. But we, and and I tried this, (laughs) there are ways in which we do it too, right? Um, Okay, so.
1: That's why it's so important when we sin. What are we showing if we Right. And how can
0: I say take a my God and I'm doing something wrong? And two, I think and that's so true, and also I would say that there's a there's a parenting thing called gospel grace based parenting maybe. And and the idea behind it is that not that you're a milk toast parent at all, but that um, Instead of instead of just saying, "Hey, we want you to obey, son, daughter," and when you don't, there's going to be a consequence, which we should, you know, there should be a consequence for disobedience and, and, and disrespect and all that. But trying to get underneath and behind the the disobedience and to go, okay, or um, so when you sin, when you when you've disobeyed me, let's talk about why this is why this is a offense to not just me but to God. But then let's talk about why you did that. And let's trace that behavior down to the heart and, and let's help create a sense of their own sin and lack of standing before God and push them to a Savior. You need a Savior just like I do. And actually exam, being an example of that to them as I sin and I get on my knees and I go, Daddy, did you wrong? You know, I grabbed your arms too hard in anger or I spoke harshly to you or I spoke disrespectfully to your mom in front of you or whatever it is, or I made a promise and I didn't keep it. Dad's a sinner. It's actually why I'm a preacher, because I'm a sinner, and I love to preach about the gospel, and I need it more than anyone. And so uh, I need... I'm a sinner, and Jesus came for sinners. So really, obviously wanting to walk holy before people, but also I think part of that holiness is showing people... Not because we're running after sin, we're trying to live in a way that pleases the Lord, but it's a life of faith. And part of a big part of that, the beating heart of that is, I'm a sinner, and I... And I daily fall short, and I, have, I stand on a righteousness that's not my own. It's received by faith, and it's a righteousness available to you, and it's that of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's and it's a, it, yeah. And loving that. And
1: like strangers and say, hey, I'm the
0: you know, first you know, one to say
1: that. Yeah. And and like,
0: it doesn't mean this perfect artifice where we're trying to behave. It means that we have a great Savior. And we relish that, and you do too. And His arms are open wide, and pushing people through our own love of the Savior because He's a Savior for sinners like us to to Him, you know. And that's mm-hmm. exactly so. That's I think
1: exactly why we need Him, and that's
0: exactly. why we need him, to forgive us. yeah. Come join <laughs> sinners like us. We have a great Savior, you know. It's not it's not the, it's not the behavior club, right? What else is we? It's you know we're a few minutes over right now, but I'd love to. If you have a couple questions, yeah, of course. And if you need to leave, of course you can, please.
1: What oh, is O man in Hebrew? O
0: man. o man. o man in Hebrew? Yes. Do we have? Well, Adam is. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what O is. I have come across it in the Hebrew Bible, but Oi. I think it's Oi actually. I think O is Oi. It'd be Oi Adam, or ha, Oi Haish. Oi Oi Ish. Ish is male, like man, and then Adam is human. Okay. Yeah. E um, OI, Adam, or OI, Ish. What about Greek? Okay. Uh, anthropos? Um, do I have my Greek Bible with me? I, I crazily don't. Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'm not sure what O is. That, that, that O could be inserted in the text. I'll have to look at that and see if that's in the Greek. Thanks, yeah. best. Sure. What else? Anything else that we talked about? Um, So there's
1: multiple other instances. I'm looking at this list back in chapter one in the following books of scripture where it talks about like the lists of sins. But then in those lists, it says that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And so you're talking about sanctification being something where God makes us more like Christ. But then when I read those lists, I'm like, I'm trying not to identify with them. You know, I'm like, Big time. But you can't hold it. You're yeah. identifying with it. And, you're, and then it's like, oh, well then, if I'm making a practice of this or if this is an ongoing struggle in my life... Yeah. Do you know what
0: and I think that right... It? No, totally. I think I get your question. Let me, let me venture a brief answer and then I'd love to hear from other people too. But I think you almost gave the answer in your reply just then when you said... Or one of... I think we can come out from different angles, but the fact that you said um, try not to make a practice of it. So the idea being... And maybe you didn't say it that way, but the idea being like, or you said something about struggling. The very fact that if you're struggling against something like that is one indication, I think, that you you hate it. It's your old man. It's going to be there to some degree until, I mean, Paul, at the end of his life, God be praised that we have this, such an encouragement, but at the end of his life, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. That was when he was the most sanctified and the most like Jesus. At the beginning of his Christian life, Toward the beginning, when he wrote the book of Galatians, he was strident, and he was like, I don't need Peter. I told him what was up. And uh, those other apostles didn't, they, didn't, didn't say, you know, and then by the end of his life, and he was a believer, but he wasn't as sanctified as toward the end. At the end, he truly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, I'm the worst of sinners. And so I think that um, those things don't, if they characterize your life, yes, that's a huge problem. And that should cause you to go man, I probably don't know the Lord. Um, if there are things that you hate and struggle against and want to see sheared off for the glory of the Lord, and they really, really bother you, and your, your Holy Spirit's grieved by them, then I think that's an indication that you're on the, on the path to sanctification. Um, they don't identify you anymore, if you're a believer. Um, Jesus does but they're still there in certain measure and you're more and more aware of them as you grow more like him and so they kind of seem but they, they seem bigger to you to the, the, you know, it's like we talked about this last week but I ran across an awesome Lewis quote in the meantime and he just said something like the bad man thinks that he doesn't have any sins that are a problem you know, like imagine Hitler Like he probably thought he was great worst person on the planet the Puritans, from the way they pray, it's like, you are a horrible person. They were probably more sanctified than any of us. And yet they saw deeply, they saw their own sin. Just like Paul, of his life, chief of sinners. You know. So I think that it doesn't identify if you're in Christ, and you are. But you're struggling against it, that's a good thing. Um, I think there's more to it. I would love to hear any, what other people.
1: I guess, like, I'm wondering, though, you know, we read this, and we are regenerated. We have the experience we've just been talking about, but you throw this in front of a, no, a non-believer. Yeah. And like, there's no. I, I feel like there's no amount of persuasion, and apologetics that can make them like swallow it and the rest. And it has to be uh, a sovereign work of God. To, Big time. To reveal, like, and I think that's why, like. I was talking about this in my parish months ago, but we were talking about the Beatitudes, and it was a question of like, are they are they are the Beatitudes given to to believers or to everyone? And and I think it has to be believers only because or Christians, the regenerate, I should say, because like it starts with the blessed of the poor in spirit, and I think what he means there and like Lujena, where, where of this is that it's like the person who realizes his spiritual poverty
0: that's right. And well, that
1: can only be... Like, only God can reveal that to you.
0: And he's also telling us things about... I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is a blueprint of what God's rule is like, right? And so it's a blueprint of the kingdom. And one of the things that that tells us in particular, that's not only a beatitude, but as you know, it's the first beatitude. It's right. the first thing Jesus says when he opens his mouth about the kingdom. And so one of the ways of interpreting that the way that I see that is, among other things, it's the entryway into his kingdom. In other words, you can't be you can't even enter into God's kingdom or take a single step toward God without turning your pockets out. When it comes to standing, you can you can you can create a Hubble Space Telescope, you can build a bridge, you can build it you can do brain surgery. But when it comes to standing before God and measuring up before him, you have to have the posture, but to, to even take a step into his kingdom of putting your pockets out and going, I'm utterly impoverished spiritually when it comes to to you. I need any amount of goodness that's gonna be mine has to come from you because I have nothing to offer but my own sin. And, and God's like, perfect, you're ready, you can come in now. Because I did everything. You know? I mean that's like step one. So no, I think I think it's what you said. I'm interested to think more about that. Who is it to? Who's the audience? I, I think it's, I almost think it's for any comers. But I think more than anything, it's, it's Jesus telling us. It's
1: describing, it's
0: describing the kingdom. It's like, here's what the kingdom is. And you can't come based on your own, your own merit. You have, you're totally, we're all totally impoverished when it comes to God's economy. Completely. Um, what else?
1: I know we need to wrap. I feel really convicted because <laughs> I have a song going to joke with, and it's not a joke, but a kind of dialogue with my parents leader. And um, I was saying, like, you know, there's a screen going on, like, uh, man, and it's like, how many times a day do you think about the Roman Empire? Yeah. i thinking that like, Beach should do a new meme, and it's like, how many times a day do you think about Romans 1? Because <laughs> I think about it whenever I open up the Wall Street Journal. Really. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. But seriously, though, I feel convicted because, like, yeah. I was in Texas him before I came here, and it was, a, it was a screenshot of this poll of Americans and their views on um, whether they thought Israel's use of force or re- retaliation against the attack on. was fully justified, and it showed it by age. It was like 61 and over, it was like 84% saying it's justified. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, it declined each, each gravity. That's like... Thirty-four and eighteen, which I'm not in that kind of anymore. Like mm-hmm. But it was like twenty-two percent. And so, wow. so I was like, so I texted that picture to him, and I go, Romans one." <laughs> but after this discussion, you know, I realized like, yeah, can't. Isn't is this not me? Kind of again pointing the finger and these people problem. The we but all yeah, do it. It's kind of difficult because like I, yeah. want, I want to like speak. That's right. About that and how. Twisted yes. things are, but I don't want to be. Uh, it's so hard. I mean, yeah,
0: we want to be able to do that and be able to make judgment calls, but without without having a posture of superiority, mm-hmm. but rather of invitation when it comes to right. salvation and God's grace. Right. So it is a it is a trick, and we have to constantly remind ourselves and be going back to the scriptures. And on that note, I'll end and then pray briefly by by just saying that what y'all were saying earlier, just about how. It seems impossible for someone to, uh, to be presented with today in the West to be presented with this hard, hard word and go, yeah, I'm a sinner, I'm a guilty of this stuff, I need Jesus. It's always a miracle, every time, right, for a dead person to come to life. It has to be God calling them, but it often happens through, and Paul talks about this in detail in Romans 10, we'll get there, through his word. His word pierces. His, and his word, uh, it, creates, it creates faith. It is... It is living and active, and it's the same word that spoke the creation into being. And there's, some, and there's some sense, and I didn't get into this in the sermon yesterday, but Peter talks about it in First Peter 1, but there's a sense in which as we speak the gospel, which is God's very word and God's very power to save, as, we, as he says in Romans 1.16 and 17, it's Christ coming to people. That's the language Peter uses. It's Christ himself coming to people, and that, and that by the power of the Spirit of Christ, as we speak the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ, can pierce the hardest heart. It's not us, but he uses us, right? And so that's our confidence. It's not in our own persuasiveness. Um, so let me let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this crew. Um, it's late. Thanks that they've hung hung around and and um, and just that we've we're we're in your word. It's hard but it's good and thank you that sometimes your word is hard like hey when the surgeon says you you have cancer, that's hard. But it's a word that Begins to save us if we'll receive it, and um, and say, "Do do then what needs to be done to me, great surgeon." So we pray that for our own lives, uh, we pray that we would submit. We wouldn't try to master Your Word; rather, we would let it master us, submit to it, and that um, through it, Jesus, You would continue to come to us and save us and sanctify us and make us like You. And that in that, um, You would go forth from us as You as we. Um, as you live in us and as you convict us of our sin and as you show us that your salvation is far greater uh, and that you would, um, you would save many uh, as, you, as you live in us and work in us. And I pray that even this week for us. Um, we love you. We bless you. And uh, keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord, and um, fully fully set our hope on the grace that's going to be revealed to us at your, at your coming, Lord. It's your full revelation. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.